Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the opportunity to talk with Michael Walsh, author of the book Last Stands, Why Men Fight When All is Lost. So without further ado, meet Michael Walsh. All right, now welcoming on special guest, author Michael Walsh. Michael, thank you again so much for your time. It's a pleasure, Jake. Now, Michael has written uh, really across the spectrum. You you have more than 15 books, fiction and nonfiction. You're a classical music critic for Time Magazine. You've written for National Review under pseudonyms, uh, which have turned into books. What initially got you into writing? especially this broadly? No, it's a tough question. I think, uh, you know, for every man who has a profession or calling, you realize that it's something you're going to do at a very early age. So I've been writing since I was old enough to read, which was about when I was two years old, and I, I never stopped. So I believe in the Catholicity of taste when you're reading. And you go after as many books and as many subjects as you think, and you find the ones that appeal to you. And uh, once you get a subject, you dig into it until you've exhausted it. So that's pretty much how writers work. Well, I love it. I have, have very much enjoyed just poking around the other topics. This is a, a podcast that I hope to, the goal has always been to sort of recommend and in, in a sort of generalist approach to life. As you mentioned, sort of a Catholic taste. And yeah. uh, so- I appreciate it. You're on the right podcast. Now, Good. we're having you on to talk about your, I think your most recent book, which is Last yes. Stands, Why Men Fight When All is Lost. How did you pitch the book to St. Martin's Press? W- what was the book that you wanted to write? Well, I, this book comes out of a whole series of books that I've written. Any, any author tends to plan his next book while he's writing his current book. And in this case, the last two books that I did uh, were cultural histories. The Devil's Pleasure Palace was the first one, and The Fiery Angel, which was kind of a sequel companion volume to that. And and in those books, I looked at the history of Western civilization from the Greeks pretty much to the present and developed some theories about, well, all sorts of things, life, love, religion, politics, you name it. Uh, But by using cultural artifacts as tools of analysis, most people tend to write, let's say, for example, political books using the political tools at hand. But since I tend to start everything with what do the Greeks have to say about this, you realize that Aristotle, in developing his philosophy, also wrote a book called The Poetics, which was about dramatic structure. And in fact, there's a a book for screenwriters. I, I spent a considerable amount of time in Hollywood over the last 20 years called Aristotle's poetics for screenwriters and it's about story structure and the principles of dramatic uh, storytelling especially western dramatic storytelling about a hero and a journey and a change and all these things we've come to accustomed to actually in our own storytelling whether it's movies or novels or plays so i use those tools to analyze our cultural history rather than political tools but you end up in the same place one way or the other now, those two books fed into this, so fed into Last Stands. And how did you, 
when you told them you wanted to write this book, what was it that you, what was sort of the elevator pitch? Well, no, it was no elevator pitch. I just said, I want to write a book about last stands. I mean, it's actually the back of an envelope pitch. One story. It's, it's it, you know, and, and no one really had ever done that book before, which my agent and I were surprised to see. So um, I just uh, sat down and figured out which battles I wanted to talk about. And that changed somewhat in the course of the evolution of creating this book. As, as all books change from a pitch to an actual realized thing. But it didn't, it, it didn't change much. And uh, I happened to be on a cruise to Hawaii with, uh, sponsored by Hillsdale College in Michigan. And okay. one of our, my fellow speakers on the cruise was the great Victor Davis Hansen, who's a friend of mine. And I said to him, hey, Victor, I'm really not trying to work your side of the street here, but I've got this idea for a military history book that'd be quite different from the kind that you do. And I showed him the proposal and Victor, as gracious as ever, said, hey, sounds good. And uh, that's pretty much what I ended up going with, with St. Martin's. And here we are. So by all accounts, the book seems to be really, really successful. As I read through it, I was surprised by its success, not because it wasn't phenomenal, but it there seems to be a sort of even for me, I, I'm squarely in the conservative world and like being there. I know who Victor Davis Hanson is and have appreciated him. It was sort of a uh, like a distant reminder even to me, someone, like I said, who I think would love your book naturally. Does this success, did it surprise you in terms of, uh, you know, I guess I suppose as you wrote that introduction, did you feel, you know, is it one of those feelings where you could hear how it would be received? No, I don't think you, you actually think about that. I, I, this is my 16th book. I think everyone but one has earned out, uh, which means that it's paid back the out of royalties. It's paid back the publisher's advance and then some. So clearly, the audience is, is there for what I do, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, the one that didn't earn out, I think, was just a little tiny book. that uh, was an opera quiz book, so that was not exactly a a mass market appeal kind of thing. But we could see this coming in a way with Devil's Pleasure Palace, which was published by Encounter. And that book, the publisher, Roger Kimball, read the manuscript in 2014, I think, when I wrote that. And he said, well, this will either be a flop or it'll be an amazing success. And luckily for us, it turned out to be the latter because it's such an unusual and odd book. I just happened to pick up this morning, a book by Walter Kaufman, who I read a lot when I was in college. This book's called From Shakespeare to Existentialism. And I realized much, much belatedly that uh, Walter Kaufman was doing the same sort of thing that I'm doing now. This is 50, 60 years ago in the post-war period of using cultural artifacts to analyze contemporary political trends. So Devil's Pleasure Palace just took off like a rocket. It, it found its its niche. Certainly, it found it on the conservative side of the ledger, but I would encourage uh, any liberals or lefties listening to this that they can pick it up and enjoy it as well. I don't write political books in the sense that I mention contemporary political figures. You, you won't really find references to, say, Barack Obama or Donald Trump in anything that I've written lately. What I, what I do try to do is to put to let the reader fill in the blanks. Oh, this reminds me of something that's happening right now, for example. So let's just take one 
big example, which is the ongoing war between Islam and Christianity, which may now perhaps be better characterized as the struggle between the Islamic Middle East and, and Southeast Asia with Western civilization, which grew out of Christendom and is now barely Christian in name. However, the battle lines are still drawn as they've been drawn since roughly the 7th or 8th century. So my discussions of Islam, for example, in the Fiery Angel, I, I really didn't have to say much about Islam except to quote from the 1001 Arabian Nights as translated, the unexpurgated translation, I hasten to, by the great Sir Richard Burton in the 19th century. It will stun, I think it would stun Western readers what obsesses the Islamic mind through its own tales and myths, uh, especially compared to uh, Western tales and myths. And I'll let the reader draw their own conclusions. What is the quote? Do you have it by chance? Well, it's a big seg section of, of one of the many zillions of the Thousand and One Arabian Nights. But I would just say this, if you want to amuse yourself, find the 13 or 14 volume unexpurgated translation of the Arabian Nights. Pick it up at any any passage and you'll be let's say surprised amused and somewhat horrified by what you're reading it it has nothing to do with flying carpets and magic lanterns believe me now one of the first you say this that the battle of thermopylae sets a high bar for last stands in history it's also the first battle that you cover why, why what about it do you think sets the high bar well it's the the original i mean there is there's nothing really before that in western history herodotus deals with the Battle of Thermopylae in, in his book, The Histories. It's been part of our civilization since, since you know, well, since the father of history himself, Herodotus. Uh, therefore, it's taken on a kind of outsized mythological, quasi-mythological significance, although there's nothing mythological about it. We know the battle happened. We know that it stopped the uh, Achaemenid Persian uh, intrusion into Western Europe. Uh, and it helps focus the reader's mind on how small the world really is, certainly the Western world, when you realize that it's the Straits of the Bosphorus that separate us from them in this ongoing struggle between what used to be referred to as Oriental despotism. And by the Orient, by the way, I should mention that the Western Europeans and the Greeks called Asia anything to the east of Constantinople. So directly across those very narrow straits started Asia. That's why that part of what's now Turkey was called Asia Minor, as opposed to the greater Asia that they had only the vaguest notion of its existence. Uh, but it's just the Straits of the Bosphorus to separate us, and that ain't very big, as we've discovered. And we turning point in that battle was 1453, when the Turks finally conquered Constantinople. So this, like I said, this battle's been going on for a very long time. The Spartans at Thermopylae are the beginning of this very long struggle, which is not yet over. Yeah. So I'm curious, you mentioned in the book several times, you know, there's a sense in which doing history right now, you know, to apply today's standards uh, or what have you to the past doesn't qualify as doing uh, a good to history. And then even as you mentioned, you know, you qualified as you, what you meant by Oriental or the Orient. I know you didn't write a traditional history book here, but like, how has it been writing history in today's world? Is it something, do you find yourself qualifying all the time? Do you, mm. what is that like? 
Uh, no, I don't qualify anything. I'm old enough to just not <laughs> care what people think. I, I, I think this cancel culture is sickening and it needs to be put down. It, it has to be resisted. Uh, people have to be told to shut up and stop talking. I don't care if you're offended and naff off, as, to put it politely, as we say in, in Ireland and England. We're too afraid of what people think. I think any good writer doesn't care what people think. You're free to buy it or not buy it. Sure. If you want to try to cancel me, well, good luck with that, pal. <laughs> I've been in this business for 50 plus years, so I, I know how to handle ankle-biting little nitwits who seem to be infesting our culture at the moment. And I mean that, of course, in the nicest possible of way. Of course, of course, of course. <laughs> but people your age have to stand up to this. There's, who cares if someone's offended? Really, who cares? So I don't think about it. I, I write what I believe to be the truth. And luckily enough, people uh, seem to agree with me that they've made this book a bestseller. Praise God. Now, I'm curious, you mentioned the chapter on the Alamo, you sort of, one aspect of it is the politically correct, and we kind of touched on it here. What role does the politic, the quote-unquote politically correct play in something like Last Stands? Can a Last Stand be not politically correct? Well, the Alamo's not now, but right. it was then. Sure. Although I'm not even sure it was then. I must say, the Alamo, I have very conflicted feelings about. Uh, for what, you know, let's just take a short detour to why that happened. Uh, when the Mexicans won their independence from Spain, uh, that part of what's now the United States, the Southwest and California, et cetera, uh, were all part of New Spain. Uh, the Mexicans didn't have enough people to control that territory. And specifically, they didn't have enough settlers to resist the Comanches who would raid them constantly and kill them. And one of the reasons the Mexican Spanish did not have enough people is the Spanish settlement of North America was quite different from the British. The British sent colonists. The Spanish sent, as I put it, the Lackland sons of the minor gentry in Spain to come over and loot as much gold and whatever else they could get their hands on and then go back. So the Spanish were literally occupying forces over the Indians and as they inbred the, then the, the mestizos, whereas the British just sent hordes of people, and then eventually all of Europe sent hordes of people to North America where people had a stake in it. Uh, in Latin America, they didn't have a stake in it, and most Latin American countries today are still ruled by what uh, I suppose <laughs> contemporary liberals would say, uh, the whitest of, of white people. I, I'm amused that this Variety magazine the other day called Anna Taylor Joy a person of color. She's she's as white as white can be. She's but because she was born in Argentina, they somehow assume that this is the racism of the left. They somehow assume she's Mexican or Cuban. Argentina is is an entirely white country. It did not have slavery, so it's not like Brazil, which is very black in the north and very white in the south. And it killed all the Indians, so there's no mestizo class in Argentina. So uh, the Pope, for example, is as Italian as Pavarotti. He just happens to have been born in Buenos Aires. And the largest ethnic group for those scoring at home in Argentina is Italians. So uh, these things all get confused and manipulated by people who think history began yesterday. And it's another reason to uh, be honest in your historic judgments, and it also helps to 
actually know what you're talking about, which obviously Variety didn't. Now, in your chapter on the Alamo, some at this point may be assuming that you simply rah-rahed the Texas heroes who died at the Alamo, but but your chapter is not that way at all. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of how you unpack yeah, that? Unpa- the, the, the Texians, as they called themselves, moved to Texas from mostly from Louisiana and Tennessee, the southeastern part of the United States. So they were slaveholders to start with. Let's begin with all kinds of politically incorrect things. They often uh, married Mexican girls and became Mexican citizens, as, as some of the defenders of the Alamo were. The, Me- the Mexicans, as I said, did not have enough people to hold that territory. And after a while, the influx of Anglos became so great, they realized the Mexican government, under Santa Ana, who was not only their general, but their president, that they were going to lose this territory be- because of sheer numbers. So they tried to take it back from the Texians. And this is where you get to Davy Crockett and, and, and Jim Bowie and all of the heroes of my 1950s childhood. And they resisted that. So in a sense, they were just ungrateful, quasi-illegal immigrants fighting off the lawful Mexican government. And that's the politically incorrect part of it. But the Mexicans couldn't hold on to the territory. And the law of the jungle is, you know, uh, possession is nine-tenths of the law, as they used to say. So uh, they eventually had to cede that territory to the Americans. All the, all the defenders had died at the Alamo, more or less. But a few days later... Stephen Austin destroyed the Mexican army at the Battle of San Jacinto, and and that was the end of the Mexicans in that part of Texas. So, you know, it's who's stronger and who wills it, but the Mexicans, in effect, brought the Alamo upon themselves. Now, a lot is talked about in terms of history writing. The victors tell the story. What role do you see the loser playing in history, and especially in your book, The Last Dance? Well, I think in this stands, the losers told the story. I mean, all of these, all the books we, we talk about, starting with Thermopylae, lose, they, they lost big. Right. The Romans, Cana, certainly crushed by Hannibal, just absolutely demolished. Probably the greatest one-day military slaughter uh, in history, especially when you consider that the Carthaginians and their allies killed all those 50,000 Romans with their bare hands. I mean, that, that took some work. The, the other battles, uh, Sigetvar, for example, in Hungary, the Hungarians and Croatians were completely wiped out by the Turks, uh, and yet they eventually won that larger struggle. I think one of the unifying aspects of Last Stands is that in, in almost every case, the losers won the war, hmm. so that the Last Stand became kind of a rallying cry. Remember, the Alamo, obviously, was a rallying cry during the war for Texas independence, and then later... Texas be- became part of the Union as a slave state, by the way. So it was part of the Confederacy uh, in, in 1861. Jeez, uh, going all the way through it, uh, I, obviously I talk about my own father's experience at the Chosen Reservoir in Korea, which is the last chapter of the book. Right. And while the Marines uh, successfully survived this onslaught by the surprise attack by the Chinese army, and did what all military people uh, will tell you is the hardest single thing to do, which was to conduct a fighting organized retreat. Mostly we see from the history of warfare that there's an expression in English, hold the line. Once the line breaks, the Romans said kind of didn't even have a line to break. They were just surrounded and crushed. But in other battles, the line would break, say at Hastings, when William the Conqueror defeated Harold the the uh, the English Anglo-Saxon king. Once the line broke, 
the defenders lose rapidly. They run, and they're easy to, to kill. So another battle I mentioned is the Romans at the Teutoburg Forest in Germany in 9 AD, where one of their own people, Arminius, whose name was Hermann in German, uh, who had been raised a Roman, turned against them and ambushed them and crushed them. And uh, the Roman line broke. It was essentially strung out on a long, long front. And then they just ran the Romans down and killed them. The, the Indians did the same thing to Custer at the Little Bighorn. Once Major Reno dismounted his cavalry and formed a skirmish line, and then the men saw how many Indians there were and began to run back across the Little Bighorn River. They were just, the Indians said it was like a buffalo hunt. So the idea is to, is to maintain discipline. And what the Marines did at the mm-hmm. Chosen Reservoir was they maintained discipline and they fought their way back. It being chased by this vast uh, uh, Chinese force, and they brought a goodly number of those those men home. So that was an amazing example of, of military skill. Now, one aspect of this that I really enjoyed, and I and I was hoping to see more of it was there's a in terms of just military might and strength. There's also an aspect of it that's moral. And you say at one point, a country whose men lose their nerve, the Soviet Union is the most recent example, soon vanishes into history. When every man is a petitioner, a packet or a slave, and every woman a whore, that country is finished. A land of strong, i.e., in defiance of previous social norms with no immediate consequences or even opposition, women and weak men is a dead country. Yeah. That was that's true. really, really striking to me. And, and as I, especially as I felt like, you know, I'm glad that this book is doing as well as it is, no matter the surprise of where we're at as a country. You spent 20 years, it sounds like, in Hollywood. What, how would you, are, are we headed for a USSR kind of fate? Well, Hollywood is, isn't important to this discussion, but I spent six years in and out of the Soviet Union. I was there when Chernobyl blew up, among other fun things I've done in my life. And uh, I was also in Berlin when the wall came down. I have a piece of it in my study here because I hit it with a sledgehammer myself the night the Wow. One of the nights right after the wall started to fall. I forget exactly the date. And then I was in Russia just before the coup against Gorbachev in the summer of 91. I left then. So my observations about Soviet Union are based on firsthand experience, not only in Moscow and Leningrad, which is now called St. Petersburg again, but in uh, Berlin, East Berlin mostly, and uh, oh, Prague and Warsaw, um, a lot of the Warsaw Pact countries. So how do you evaluate this, the moral strength of America currently? I mean, like, do you see something? It's poor. Yeah. It's okay. bad. <laughs> I mean, you, part of the problem is the notion of masculinity has been attacked as toxic. Uh, I I gave a speech on this book before it was published at, at Hillsdale College in Michigan, and I called it In Praise of Toxic Masculinity. I think uh, young men have been feminized in many ways. They, they have feminine intonations to their voices. They have this kind of softness. And uh, just listen to NPR if you want to hear uh, what essentially is a, a, nest, a nest of capons trying to speak like men. It's, it's quite contemptible, actually. And I think that men your age need to stand up for who you are. And partly this book is, as you can tell by reading it, it's an exhortation to men to find their masculinity again and, and not care what other people think. But, you know, your, your generation is 
children of divorce. It's it's children of uh, a complete social destabilization, which obviously we didn't have in the 1950s. That didn't start really until the 1970s. And as a result of this, I think you guys have a very hard time both dealing with women and, and dealing with your own place in society. So this book is for you. Let's put it that way. Uh, I don't believe you said in a book or somewhere that you, you were not in the military, but you were born on a military base. Yes, we have Marine Corps base. You, you talk about your dad's time in Korea. Can you talk to us about you know your life? Like, what what was your childhood like, and especially in tangent to war? I suppose the topics of war. Well, I think it, all service kids have a similar experience. You know, we're called army brats. We don't have a hometown. We don't have lifelong friends. Uh, in those days, when you moved, uh, as we did, you didn't just move down the street or to the next town over you moved six thousand miles in another direction as we did when we moved from washington dc to honolulu hawaii in 1962 you become very self-sufficient i think a, a lot of us share this in common i've lived much of my life abroad I, I live in ireland now as we discussed earlier when i was at time magazine i lived on an airplane mostly going to uh, events around the world from japan to the Soviet Union. Uh, you feel very comfortable. I like my my little house up here in the New England woods right now because it gives me the solitude I need. On the other hand, I lived in New York City for many, many years, and all six of my novels are set in New York City. So I think it gives you a kind of broad scope. What you lose in in hometownness and all these sort of homely, as the in, in the original sense of the word, values, you gain in a, in a larger perspective of the world. I'm curious if there's, uh, so let's say if there's folks that are listening that fully identify with the lost generation that you described and they want to, um, as they're having kids, they want to, you know, start over, do differently with, with the next generation that they're raising. Mm. What, what are things you would recommend? What are ways, you know, is it that, that they can maybe incorporate, you know, stories of, of last battles or, or do you have recommendations along those lines? I had two daughters, so I didn't have any sons, but I think you have to raise boys different than you raise girls. I think the, the innate nature of human beings, and this is a fundamental belief of mine, does not change, that men are men and women are women. And this notion of gender is just a, uh, I don't even know where to start on that. I mean, there are three genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter and those are grammatical terms there are two sexes male and female the end and that's the end of that discussion males are different from females they're obviously biologically different they're psychologically different uh they're different in strength stamina endurance speed they're different uh intellectually in especially when you look at the distribution curve of morons and geniuses in each sex women cluster way in the middle and men have extreme idiots and extreme brilliant people the the they're they're two completely different creatures and they have to be treated as such clearly the greeks knew how to do this the romans knew how to do this yeah if the feminists have a problem with it their problems with god not with me <laughs> there you have it well michael you've been really kind with your time i appreciate you coming by go get last stands michael is there anywhere you'd want people you know where can people go keep up with you do you want to send them to a website well i'm pleased to say i was kicked off twitter early i was one of the first major conservative voices suspended forever from twitter i don't wow. know why I, I literally i don't know why it's wow. just 
that's the guy with the funny looking beard who runs this <laughs> ridiculous uh, scam on people. So he kicked me off, but uh, I'm on Facebook still, okay, uh, although great. I got my wrist my wrist slapped the other day for something I said about the English of all people. So <laughs> apparently you're not supposed to be mean to anybody, even if it's historically true. That's the world we live in. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Just look for the, the book as my avatar and, uh, and follow me there. Awesome. Everyone go find him. Thank you again, Michael. You're welcome. Cheers. <laughs>